He's an Israelite. Jonah was born and raised on a border town of Israel, bordering Assyria. It's very possible, if not likely, that his hometown had experienced the devastating evil of a Ninevite war party. It's possible that he'd lost loved ones or, or knew those who had. This is not theoretical for Jonah. It's not just because he's in a huff. This is deeply personal. Imagine being the parents of a young girl or girls who were dragged off by Boko Haram in Nigeria. And God says he wants to show grace to these evil men. And so this is, it's deeply personal. And, and Jonah, Jonah has arguments that he could raise. Jonah has been taught by God, from the word of God, that the world is divided into two groups. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are God's people and then God's enemies. And, and so for, for God, Israel's God, to show mercy to Israel's fiercest enemy feels like betrayal. If God allows Nineveh to live, Nineveh is increasing in strength. If God allows Nineveh to live, Jonah does not see how Israel can continue to survive. And he's not wrong in this. Forty years from this date, Nineveh, the Assyrians, are going to sweep down and annihilate Israel, remove it from the face of the map. They call them the ten lost tribes of Israel because they were dispersed and lost, never to be seen again. These are the children and grandchildren of the people that God is, is... showing mercy to, here in Jonah chapter 4. The children of these Ninevites will murder and rape and pillage the people of God. And so Jonah, Jonah's angry. He stomps out of, the, out of the city and goes up to a hill looking over the, the, the town, Nineveh, this great city. And he sets up a booth to see what God would do, hoping and praying that God will do what he ought to do. And that is rescue Israel and destroy Assyria. And so he looks out over a wicked world and prays for judgment to fall. And so here you have the God of heaven and his prophet clearly at opposite ends. So what does God do to Jonah? Well, he blesses him. Uh, but it's a blessing with a, with a lesson attached. Verse 6, now the Lord appointed a, a plant and made it come over Jonah so that it might be a shade above his head to save him from his discomfort. This is a, a, a saving plant, a rescuing plant. And Jonah was exceedingly glad uh, because of the plant. Uh, that's noteworthy. It's the first time in the story we've seen Jonah happy. And he's exceedingly happy. Why is he so happy? Well, because the Lord has, has blessed him. The Lord has seen his need, and the Lord has responded. And and it's evident that the the Lord has compassion for Jonah. And and it seems that things are going the way they ought to go. Um, It's it's a reason to be be happy. He's very, very happy about God's kindness to him in this plant. And then the Lord took it away. God appointed a worm uh, that attacked the plant so that it withered. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. And the writer wants us to see the direct, intervening, divine hand of God in, in these affairs. So you have the reoccurring word, uh, use of the word appoint, just like the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord here appointed uh, this plant, and he appointed a worm to attack the plant, and he appointed a scorching east wind, 
and the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God is doing all of this. One of the great struggles, friends, of being a Christian is the struggle of God's sovereignty. Many of you have experienced that sovereignty in deeply painful ways. The Lord gave a pregnancy, and then the Lord took it away. He gave health, and then he took it away. He gave success. He gave a loved one. He gave a dream. He gave an opportunity, and and then he took them away. And we don't know why. And God did it. God did it. We don't live in an accidental world. We live in an appointed world where God appoints, and we have to come to terms somehow with the God who is, the God who appoints things that we would never choose. Well, how do we do that? The text doesn't give us all the answers to that question, but it gives us the essential foundation. As as God now engages with Jonah and asks Jonah to consider the reality of his grace to Jonah, the reality of his sovereign right regarding Nineveh. Do you do well to be angry? In the Hebrew, the emphasis is on you. So God is saying, do you, Jonah, do you, in your context, your circumstance, you, the man, do you, do you do well to be angry after the insinuation being what I've just done for you? And after all that I've done to you, Jonah, you see, has been the recipient of grace upon grace. Think of all the kindness of God that was shown to Jonah. He was born a Hebrew, born into the covenant community. He did not ask to be born into the covenant community. He could have just as easily been born in Nineveh. But God showed grace to him. He was the recipient of God's law, which is the light of the, of the knowledge and the character of God, his ways, so that he could walk according to it by the Spirit. They didn't deserve that blessing. The Ninevites hadn't received that blessing. This was a gracious, undeserved gift of God to Israel. He was the beneficiary of all God's saving acts in in Israel's past. So um, the history of God's goodness to Israel is the history of God's goodness to Jonah. Uh, God rescuing Israel out of Egypt. You see, that was a a gift of grace that Jonah was experiencing the benefits of that. God bringing Israel into the land of Canaan. Um, God God had been gracious to Jonah, not just in his lifetime, but, but, but centuries and centuries as God showed mercy to Israel. And every material and spiritual blessing then that Jonah enjoyed, he enjoyed by the mercy and grace of God. And then, of course, you have, you have the incident uh, with the ship and the storm and the whale, the fish. Uh, Jonah absolutely deserved to, be, to drown and to die and to go into the depths of Sheol and into hell. He utterly deserved that, and yet, and yet he didn't. God had miraculously rescued him. And, and so God says, do you, Jonah... The recipient of grace upon grace, do you do you do well to be angry when your whole life is a story of, of unmerited kindness and grace of God? And the answer, of course, is no. I do not do well to be angry. But Jonah is, he's hurt, he's angry, and he, he can't see it. He can't, he can't bring himself to say it. And, and so God uh, gives and takes away the plant. And God asked the question again, do you do, well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah still can't see it. Yes, I do. Angry enough to die. He feels perfectly justified in his anger. The grace of God is not, it does not seem to, to move him. 
And so the Lord then asks him to consider the simple, irreducible godness of God. Where, where God says, verse 10, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which, it came, in, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. You see, in all of Job's thoughts about God's dealings with Nineveh, he has He's not considered it from, from God's perspective. It's been from his perspective and from what he would say is Israel's perspective. But he hasn't seen it from God's perspective. And God here shows Jonah and us the, how he sees his world. First, God reminds uh, Jonah that, that he, the living God, is the creator of men. And he reserves the right to deal with his creatures as he sees fit. It is, it is God's glory, as we read in Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have, have mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. God reserves the sovereign right to show mercy to whom he will. He shows injustice to no one. Everyone gets mercy or justice. And God reserves the right to determine to whom he will give which. <clears throat> You see, Jonah, in Jonah's world, uh, there were sides, and, and God should take this side and not this side. God, God should take Israel's side. But God doesn't take sides. God doesn't let himself be pressed into our preconceived notions of what he ought to do. We hear today that uh, it's becoming increasingly common to hear people say that God is always on the side of the oppressed. Well, the book of Jonah is incontrovertible proof that that just isn't true. Israel is the oppressed. Nineveh is the oppressor. No one would deny that. You see, God doesn't submit to our preconceived notions of sides. God takes God's side every time. He takes God's side. What he wants to do. It's what he does. Always. So God reserves the right to be God over against all of Jonah's theological protests. And secondly, God wants us to see and to know that he has compassion for this wicked lost world. Should I not pity Nineveh? Those are, that's, a, that's a profound question. You see, when Jonah looks at Nineveh, he sees wicked people doing wicked things. He sees enemies of God's people intent on destroying God's nation. That's what he sees. He sees people who hate God, literally and truly. People who are opposed to everything that is good. People who are fully deserving divine judgment. That's what Jonah sees. What does God see? Well, God sees all that. God knows the heart of men. God knows the wickedness more than, more than Jonah does, more than we do. He sees the, the, the worthiness of, of, of condemnation. God sees all that, but that's not all he sees. He sees more. He sees people made in his image, creatures of his own hand. So when he says to Jonah, he says, you, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Well, who did labor for the plant? Who did make it grow? God labored for the plant. God made it grow. It wasn't there by accident. It was there as a, a specific creation of the hand of God. 
And, if, and, and God says, if, so if you pity the plant, which is here today and gone tomorrow, should you not pity? Should I not pity? Do I not have the right to pity? People I've made in my image, people I've labored, for, labored to create and caused to grow, does not God have the right to care for, for creatures made in his image? Of course he does. And when God looks at this world, he, he, doesn't, he, he sees all the rebellion, all the sin, but he also sees spiritual ignorance and blindness. When God defines these people. They don't know their right hand from their left. That, that's a, there's a statement showing that they are so morally confused. They don't know up from down. They, they, they think evil is good. They, they, uh, they fear righteousness. They, they love all the wrong things. They hate all the good things. They're completely, utterly lost. You, 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 you want a good description of the world we live in today. Where people are just, they're just utterly confused, absolutely lost. God has compassion. Should I not pity these people who don't know the right hand from their left? You see, when, when you meet someone who's, who's maybe uh, disfigured because of uh, some accident or, or some disease, maybe, uh, maybe a cancerous tumor, whatever it might be, you, you, you don't just turn away in disgust. You, you have compassion. This is not how it ought to be. Something's gone Something's gone wrong. And, and God, you see, has compassion. He's compassionate on all that he has made. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He has compassion on the citizens, these wicked, wicked people in Nineveh. He has compassion on Muslim terrorists and abortionists and those who are involved in sex trade and drug lords. They, they don't know their right hand from their left. It doesn't mean they're not without fault. They are full of fault. The book of Nahum is, is God's judgment against Nineveh for their sin of destroying Israel. And it's, it is full judgment. But God doesn't just see wicked sinners. He sees helpless, lost, blind, ignorant, sin-captivated image bearers. And he has compassion on them. And it's a critical lesson, folks, for us. We've got to learn to see the world the way God sees the world. We tend to look at the world the way Jonah looked at the world. Those of us who grew up in the church, we have a strong tendency to see the world that way. We believe on the basis of God's word, word that the church is God's holy people, his chosen possession, and we're taught that God hates sin, which he does, and that the world hates God, which they do. All of those things are absolutely true, and, and yet we, we can take those truths and look at the world as though they were an alien race. They're not like us. They do drugs, they sleep around, they blaspheme God, they applaud the murder of unborn children, they promote policies that destroy lives and families and societies. We see the assault taking place in our society today against God, against His good creation. And it's devastating. It breaks our heart. I was reading, uh, we're reading in high school theology class, Nancy Percy's book on Love Thy Body. This past week it was on transgenderism. 
And I just confess to the kids that I vacillate reading that stuff between anger and despair when I read about the lies being told to, to children. That the fact of the biological fact of their, of their body does not matter. That truth will be found in their feelings at five years old, eight years old. And that, and that um, you read the, the stories of brokenhearted parents who um, are, are weeping for their children because school counselors and pediatricians have assigned uh, hormone therapy and, and, uh, and uh, physically dis- devastating surgeries in this futile effort to make the body match an, an emotion, a feeling. And it's, and it's murdering these kids. Suicide rates for transgendered kids is 41%, 2014. That is, uh, the, the national average is 4.5. And so you hear, you hear you have an ideology that is literally, truly killing children. All driven by the, the, this, this violent, anti-God commitment that nothing, absolutely nothing shall be, sta- but shall, shall be able to stand, you see, over against the, the sovereign will of a person that we, we demand that we will do what we want to do. Facts and children be damned. And so I, I, I read that stuff and oh boy, it's, it's, it's easy to get angry. And as the dark night of spiritual chaos and rebellion against God uh, descends, as the body count rises, it would be very easy for us to sit on the hill just like Jonah and wish for judgment to fall. If we're honest with ourselves, maybe you've already been there. And you can be so easily self-righteously indignant. And that's why it's so important for us to see the heart of God, because we have got to learn to see the world the way God sees the world. Should not God pity San Francisco? That godless, godless city? Should he not pity New York? A godless city? Should he not pity Hollywood? Washington, D.C.? People who do not know their right hand from the left? Yes, people who are at war with God and destroying God's good creation. But they don't know their right hand from their left. And God calls us to see the way he sees. You see, Job's whole, God's whole argument with Job about the plant is, is that Job is miffed because a, a plant has died, but he has no concern for image bearers who are headed for eternal destruction. Sinclair Ferguson says that we are, the church, generally more concerned with the contents of our garage than the eternal plight of our neighbors. About a week or so ago, I was standing outside a Meyer grocery store uh, late afternoon and just watching people flow through. You know, there's just one door now, so everybody's got to go in and out the one over here on 54th Street. And our community just flowing in and out, red, yellow, black, and white. All made in the image of God. Most unchurched, unconverted. Lost in sin. Quickly moving towards an eternity without Christ. And God has pity on them. God has pity on them. And God has a strategy to reach them. It's called the church. The local church. That's God's 
plan to reach the Ninevites of our day. We just have to have a heart like God's heart. So how do we get that? How do we get a heart like God's? Well, we, you begin by realizing that we are by nature all Ninevites. As Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2, we were like the rest of all mankind, objects of wrath, following the ruler of the prince of the air, uh, the wicked people who uh, are devoted to rebelling against God and wreaking havoc on his creation, destroying what God calls good. They're, they're just doing what we would do if not we had not been rescued by the grace of God. We're all Ninevites. The doctrine of, of, of the fall. So you, you have things that stand in, in Scripture as just fundamental um, pillars of a, a biblical worldview. You have a world that was created by God. Uh, so it's answerable to God, and it's ruled by God, and it's good. It's a good creation. And then you have the fall into sin. And we are all complicit. Everyone. Has, we, we've all sinned against this God. Desperate for, for, for grace. So, so we've got to start by realizing that we're, 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 there's no difference. But, but I, I can say that and think, yeah, but how do I get past that righteous indignation when real violence is being performed by wicked people? How do you, how do you move from, from a bitter to compassionate heart when so much wrong is being done that's devastating to, to God's creation and to, and, and to God's to God's people. How do you, that's where Job is stuck as he's sitting on the hill. Well, you remember the price that God paid to rescue you when you were lost in transgression and sin, when you did not know your right hand from the left hand. God sent his son while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You see, Jesus is the anti-Jonah. Jesus uh, is the one who did exactly the opposite. Jonah went and sat on a hill, gripped by bitterness and self-righteousness, waiting and, and praying for justice to prevail and judgment to fall. Jesus, on the other hand, the perfect son of God, did not sit on the hill. He left his throne in heaven. He came down into this Ninevite world to bear our sin and then to ask the judgment that we deserve to fall on him. Praying for judgment, not on us, but on himself, so that we might be set free. You see, if, in, if we know that, if we believe that, if we remember that, well, then I, how could we pray for judgment to fall on others when it fell on Jesus for our sin? You see, friends, it's going to take that. It's nothing less than an experience of the love of God to you in Jesus Christ when you were lost in sin. Nothing less than that love revealed in the cross will be able to set you free from bitterness and move you to compassion. We need to remember God's grace to us. Put ourselves maybe in the world's shoes. Michael O., works with Lasan Missionary Organization. And Michael O. was listening to a sermon. He said this. We need to remember that our circumstances are by the grace of God alone. I think we look at our life, we look at our circumstances, and we maybe want a few things to be better, but our circumstances are, are, are quite, quite pleasant. And we, we don't want that to change. We don't want people threatening our circumstances, threatening our freedoms, threatening our, our property, our, our rights. But... Um, but O says, our circumstances are by the grace of God alone. Avoid the temptation of your blessings. 
Those blessings come with temptations to make that the point of our life. He says, have you ever considered the incredible grace and mercy of being born into your circumstances? You could have just as easily been born in the slums of Bangladesh or the son of a Shinto priest. And if you had been born in the slums of Bangladesh or the son of a Shinto priest or a Ninevite, how would you want the people who know the name and grace of Jesus to respond? Wouldn't you want them to care? Wouldn't you want them to have pity and compassion? To pray? To give? To go? I think one of the areas for all of us and for us as a church together to grow is, is, is to sense the, the heart of God for this lost world. Billions of people who do not know their right hand from their left. And who are, are plunging towards an eternity without Christ. And God has compassion. God calls us to go. May God raise up in this congregation missionaries who are willing to go. But may God call, raise up in this congregation missionaries who are willing to stay right here. You know that God is bringing the world to us. We have one of the most unprecedented opportunities in, in world mission history. The nations are literally coming to us. There are people in Grand Rapids, many, many people, who speak Hindi and Serbo-Croatia, uh, Croatian. Uh, there are people who speak um, German as their natural language. They're, they're, uh, we have people from all over the world. Uh, go, to the, go to the gas station, see, see who's running them. Uh, in New York City, the majority of, of convenience stores are, run, are, are, are operated and owned by Yemenis. Do you know how hard it is to be a missionary in Yemeni? It's nearly impossible in Yemen. And yet, and yet they're right in our neighborhood. They're, they're right here. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you know how difficult it is to get in Saudi Arabia? It's nearly impossible. There are 42,000 Saudi Arabian students studying in the United States. You know how hard it is to do ministry in Japan? It's very, very difficult. There are thousands of Japanese students studying in the United States. They're right here. Some statistics say that 86% of foreign students who come to the United States are willing to have a conversation about Jesus, and many of them become converted. It's the most fruitful, it's the most uh, fertile soil for gospel proclamation uh, because they're needy, they're away from home, they're lonely, they need a friend. They're willing to talk. Friends, we have opportunities right here in West Michigan. May God give us the eyes to see them. It would just involve, you see someone at the store who doesn't look like they're from here, and you strike up a conversation, and where are you from? And you get to know them, and you invite them over for supper, and you start loving on them as a family. And you bless them in Jesus' name. And you invite them to church, maybe to your small group Bible study, or just maybe to read the Bible to see if they'd be interested in knowing about your Jesus. And we can start, you and I can start impacting lives. We just need to see them and care for them and have the heart of God. May God grant it. Amen. Oh God in heaven, forgive us for our our apathy and our self-absorption. Forgive us, Lord, that we can easily be charged with caring more for the contents of our garage 
than for our neighbors who are without Christ. And for the nations like Bangkok and Beijing, Lord, all the great cities of this world teeming with people who do not know Jesus. Father, I pray you would use this book to change the way we think about being a Christian. I thank you for Jesus who has come not only to rescue us, but to rescue lost, sin-blinded sinners just like we were. And he's called us to participate in the mission. I pray that the grace, Lord, that you've shown to us would move us to compassion and grace for those around us. I pray, Lord, that we would submit gladly to your sovereignty, but, but Lord, even more, uh, we, would, we would be molded by your compassion for sinners. We thank you so much for the grace that you've given to us. Oh, Lord, may we not turn it into a cause for self-congratulation or self-righteousness or apathy. But by your spirit, Lord, you would move us to care as you care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond by singing, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. Why Was I a Guest? And then after the benediction, we'll close with Let the Nations Be Glad. Would you stand and sing, How Sweet and Awesome, number 469 in the hymnal.